This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. I'm Jessica Knoll. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. My name is Vanessa Bennett. Um, My parents were murdered when I was three years old. My sister, my mom and my dad, and I was the only survivor. It was general panic around the Denver metro area at the time. And everybody was afraid of a serial hammer murderer walking the streets. Before we get into today's story, we want to bring our listeners an update on a previous case we've covered here on True Crime Chronicles. This is a pretty big one. Right. So this is a this is a story we covered um, called Redhead Murders. And this particular victim, Tina Marie McKinney Farmer, we told you about, her body was found uh, on New Year's Day in 1985, and she had been reported missing. She was, if you remember that episode, she was in her 20s, and she was pregnant. And she was found along I-75 in Campbell County, Tennessee. And Jessica, as I recall, her murder was actually potentially linked to a string of similar killings uh, in Tennessee and Kentucky. They all occurred in around the same time, along the same stretch of highway, a long stretch of highway, that is. And all the victims were redheads. Exactly. And, you know, there's so many people had looked into this, including, um, I believe, a high school group of students had started looking at at these cases. And their initial thought that was that this person who may have committed these crimes, if they were related, uh, may have been a truck driver since they were all um, off of interstate. 75 um, throughout several states. Um, And it turns out with this update from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, the guy that they're saying is responsible for, Tina Farmer, was in fact a truck driver. Okay. And what what do we know about this individual? Is he behind bars? Yeah. Actually, Jerry Leon Johns from Cleveland, Tennessee, um, actually was behind bars, but he died in prison um, on an unrelated charge in December 2015. And this week is when the Campbell County Grand Jury found that there was enough evidence to indict him for the first-degree murder in in Tina Farmer's death. Okay, so... After his death, he's now been identified as as the suspect in at least one of these cases, this string of murders involving redheaded women in the mid-1980s. That's right. So with the announcement yesterday, um, they said that he was actually a suspect when Farmer was killed in 1985. So he was and he was actually under suspicion in a similar case in Knox County, Tennessee. What investigators had learned at that point was that two months after Tina's body was found, he picked up another woman who looked very similar to Farmer, um, another redhead. Um, he strangled her, tied her up, and dumped her along I-40, which was another uh, location where some of the victims we talked about were found. She actually survived, and it's her statement that led to his initial arrest on numerous charges of kidnapping and assault. And that's what he was convicted on in 1987, and then subsequently died in prison for those in 2015. And what investigators were saying yesterday was that he was actually a long-haul truck driver, and they can't say for certain whether or not Farmer was seen at the truck stop near Tina's home in Indiana before her death, but that's something that could have connected the two. 
so he's already behind bars for this other kidnapping. The woman gets away, but he, he's arrested and charged and put behind bars. How do they then make the connection between that case and this new information coming in? So one of the, one of the Tennessee Bureau Investigation Special Agent um, had been working Tina's case for, for more than a decade. So he resubmitted DNA evidence to the crime lab, and it actually turned up a match. And so he was able to match that to some to uh, a missing persons case, the Campbell County Jane Doe, which eventually led to Tina's identity. They don't have any evidence at this time that he is connected to any of the other cases that they're looking at within the redheaded murders. All right, Jessica, thanks for that update. We will, of course, provide any additional information as it comes in in coming weeks. In the meantime, if you'd like to go back, if you have not heard that episode already, it's episode number three of True Crime Chronicles, The Redhead Murders. All right, let's get into today's story. In January 1984, a series of brutal attacks brought fear and panic to the city of Denver, Colorado, and they went unsolved for decades. The cases are now the subject of a new podcast called Blame from KUSA in Denver. Kevin Vaughn is the host of the podcast and tells us about the cases this week on True Crime Chronicles. I'm Kevin Vaughn. I'm an investigative reporter at KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver. Um, I've been a reporter for more than 30 years. Give us sort of the snapshot of what this story is about, and then we can get into more of the details. Yeah, so in January 1984, there were uh, a couple of uh, middle-of-the-night break-ins that occurred in which a, a man assaulted people with a hammer. And in the first one, this couple awakened in the middle of the night, and they find a guy in their bedroom that, that hit them both on the head with a hammer but then fled, um, I think, as um, immediately as soon as the husband started to challenge him, he ran out. About six days later, a woman's pulling into her garage late at night, and as she's getting out of her car, she gets... She gets hit with an object. Police suspect it's a hammer. She's incapacitated. She's sexually assaulted and left for dead and somehow crawls into her house and is still alive the next day when her husband, who was an airline pilot, comes home and, and finds her and calls police. And she recovers and, and actually is, is doing, has done very well in her life. And those two attacks didn't really get any media coverage when they happened. The next day, after, the, after that woman was attacked, someone um, broke into a house on the west side of Denver, across town from where these first two attacks happened, and surprised a 50-year-old woman who had just come home with a, um, a Wendy's hamburger to eat lunch. It was like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, beat her to death with a hammer and raped her. And then six days after that, the crime that really got the attention of people in Denver, um, a husband and wife, both in their late 20s and their eight-year-old daughter, all beaten to death with what investigators believe was a claw hammer. It was not left at the scene, but that's what they surmised from the injuries. Um, Another daughter who was then not quite four, beaten so savagely that um, they thought she was dead when they found her, and the doctors thought she might die for quite a while afterward. Both the little girls were sexually assaulted, and um, you can imagine it just uh, it it shocked the Denver area. We we ran stories in those first few weeks about um, gun sales and burglar alarm sales skyrocketing, and neighborhoods going out and hiring private security firms to patrol at night up and down their suburban streets uh, uh, to look for for trouble. 
And then, of course, the cases went cold and years went by and no suspect was identified. Horrific crimes. Let me ask, in the early days, were there concerns or questions about, you know, this happened once and then again and then a third time and then a fourth time? Were there questions about why the police didn't make a bigger deal of it early on, perhaps stopping more from happening? Um I don't really think so. I, I, I don't think it was until that third attack that um, that the police really uh, sort of realized that it was the same person. The first attack, you know, it's funny. You, you think getting awakened in the middle of the night by a guy hitting you in the head with a hammer would be, be pretty awful. But those, I mean, those yeah, people— Yeah, it, it sounds traumatic. Yeah, it sounds traumatic. Those people, though, their injuries turned out to be, in the grand scheme of things, relatively— Minor. I mean, I think I think one of them had a concussion, and and the other had a head injury. They of course had had uh, psychological trauma from it, but um, you know that attack happened, and then six days went by, and and the next two attacks were within a matter of you know twelve or fifteen hours of each other. The one with the woman that was surprised in her garage on one side of Denver, and then the woman, the first murder that happened across town, and at that point, uh, it was a big deal. And the police did immediately release the information about the earlier assaults. That was all covered within the first, you know, 24, 48 hours after the the murders started occurring. And and um, and then they just stopped. You know, um, all of this happened in 12 days, and it was a it was a weird pattern. It was like January 4th, and then the next two were late the night of January 9th and the day of January 10th, and then the next one was January 16th. And so to the point where they were um, flooding the area with with officers on January 22nd because it seemed like as six days had gone by and another one was going to happen, and of course it didn't. And, and you mentioned one was across town from the other one. Were they all, though, basically in a similar geographical area? They were similar in the sense that, I mean, I mean they're like 25 miles apart from each other, but they're similar. In, oh, so a little distance. A little distance, but but tied together by a common road. Uh, this this road we know is Alameda Avenue. It's one of the main east-west four-lane roads through the Denver area that runs literally from the far east into town all the way out to the west where the city bumps up against the foothills. And so there was some thought early on that this this man that was carrying out these attacks was somehow th- that road was important to him. Either it was how he got to and from work or maybe he was riding a bus up and down that road. So that was sort of the the gin the the geographic connector even though they were quite a distance away um from each other in you know in miles and the victims though were not connected in any way as far as police were concerned the victims were not connected there were some other weird connections though the the first couple it turned out they had left their garage door open you know their main garage door um you know, the the husband thought the wife had closed it. The wife thought the husband had closed it. The second attack, the woman was just pulling into her garage, so her garage door was open. Then the third attack, when the when the first murder occurred, when the victim's family came and found her, they were surprised when they pulled up and found the garage door open. And then, of course, in the fourth attack with the family, the Bennett family, their garage door was open. So there was that common denominator in every case. And then on top of that, in every case— uh, the woman's purse was taken and dumped out, almost like in a search for cash. Um, in a couple of cases, it was dumped out right on scene, and in one case, it was taken down the street and dumped out, you know, along the road somewhere. 
Um, so there were some some odd similarities tying them together beyond the fact that they all apparently involved hammers. And I say apparently because, you know, in some of the cases the hammers were found on se- on the scene and in some of the cases they weren't. So, um, you know, they were left to guess. So he actually, he or, sh- or she at the time, whoever it was, w- actually left the, the murder weapon or the, the, the weapon that, they, that was being wielded in these attacks. Yeah, the murder weapon was left in the first homicide in the in the— one of the 50-year-old woman, Patricia Smith. But in the killing of the three members of the family, the, the, there was no hammer found at scene, but the coroner surmised from the injuries that a claw hammer was used. Um, and they were pretty sure right away that it was a man because it was, it was pretty obvious to them. There were sexual assaults that occurred, rapes that occurred. Um, I, I think they probably didn't rule out the possibility right. a woman could have been involved, but they were focusing on a man. It sounds like there were... There was an, an incredibly specific type of victim. I mean, you had a couple and then a woman and then a family. I mean, it, it, it sounds like he he cast a wide net. You had, a, you had a, a couple that were both in their early 20s, newly married in their first home. You had a, a woman who was in her late 20s who was a flight attendant who, who lived with her. her uh, now he's her husband. At, at the time, he was her boyfriend who was an airline pilot. And, and then you had this um, woman across town that was— 50 years old and was living with her daughter who was going through a divorce and a couple of her grandkids. And then you had this family, a young family, like I said, a husband and wife in their late 20s, their daughters, you know, uh, just about eight years old and just about four years old. And they're in a new subdivision, um, you know, so new there's hardly even any like trees in the yards. And so, yeah, different victims. And so, you know, one of the questions is, was the was the common denominator the open garage door, that this was somebody that just saw an opportunity when he could get into the garage and then from the garage into the house, you know, without being seen, not having to knock on the front door or fight his way through a, a locked door or something like that. Were they able to come up with any type of information or a sketch or uh, it sounds like there were no witnesses? The only witnesses were the, that the, that first couple um, oh sure. Um, the for example, the flight attendant was had no memory of the assault after it happened, um, so she had no no wit no description to give. The first couple described their assailant as uh, an African American man, um, which is you know now looking back thirty five years later, that's an interesting interesting thing because the suspect who's been identified as white. Um, it's been suggested to me by investigators that um, the guy may have been wearing some kind of a mask, um, which would make sense. And again, if you're in bed asleep in the dark of your bedroom and somebody starts whacking you on the head with a hammer, it's not hard to imagine being confused, uh, n- not hard to imagine somebody misidentifying what somebody looked like, especially if they had on a mask, you know, a nylon over their head or something like that. Who knows? And who's investigating this then? Is it state police? It's—, it's uh, Colorado is uh, very much a uh, local control state. We don't really have a state police force. We, we, we have the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, which aids agencies and does a lot of forensic testing. But basically, local police and sheriff's departments handle crimes like this. So the, the first two attacks on the couple and the flight attendant and the fourth attack on the Bennett family were all in the city of Aurora. So that was an Aurora Police Department case. And then the the attack, the, the the first murder on the 50-year-old woman, Patricia Smith, was in the city of Lakewood, which, again, is, you know, 25 miles across town from Aurora. And so that was a Lakewood Police Department case. Two different district attorneys 
um, you know, handled those two jurisdictions. So um, two agencies basically handling the four cases. And you said that it created a bit of a frenzy. It's, uh, that's completely understandable, and people were actually running out and buying weapons. Yeah, people were running out and buying guns, buying burglar alarms. Um, back then, one of our reporters went to a neighborhood watch meeting, and the the organizers, you know, said they usually get six or eight people at the things, and they had like 250 people there. Um, and like I said, there were like private security officers that were being paid to patrol neighborhoods at night. It was a very uh, unsettling time. People were calling the police when they saw like the 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 cable guy working working in the alley behind their house or when someone came to read their meter, they were calling the police and saying, you know, how do I know that this guy isn't the guy, you know? So this string of assaults and then murders comes to an end, right? And and nothing happens for, for a long time, you said. It goes completely quiet. You know, there are the uh, predictable stories on each anniversary that they haven't been solved yet. Um, in the late 1980s and into the 90s, there was a bunch of forensic work that was done, you know, DNA by then had become a thing that police were using to identify suspects and so forth. Um, And so uh, by about 2002, the police had a pretty good DNA profile, uh, a complete enough DNA profile to enter it into the FBI's national database. And that that profile came from evidence in the the Bennett case, the, the one where the family was killed. And so beginning then, you know, they're, they're thinking, well, somebody that did this probably did something like this somewhere else. And if their DNA gets entered into the system at some point, we'll be able to identify them. Years go by, no identification. Finally, in 2010, the, uh, the police department working on Patricia Smith's murder submit a bunch of their evidence for new DNA testing. And they get a, finally get a DNA profile in that case, which exactly matches the one in the other case. And so now they know for sure what they had long suspected that, you know, there weren't multiple people running around attacking people with hammers, that it was one person that was responsible for, for these murders. Um, they, uh, you know, in the, in the last five years did more extensive, uh, efforts to use the DNA. They brought in a, a genetic genealogist to try to track down the person, you know, through, through uh, using DNA available online that people post on, you know, websites, you know, that, that generally cater to people looking for, like, you know, their birth parents or something. Um, they brought in a company from the East Coast that actually generated a uh, sort of a, uh, a mugshot of what the killer would have looked like based on that DNA profile, you know, with hair color and eye color and that sort of stuff. Um, and so, so, so the work continued for years and years. But the overriding question was, again, how does somebody do all of this in 12 days, kill four people, sexually assault multiple people, leave a couple other people for dead, and then just stop? And it was a mystery for, you know, more than 30 years. All right. So bring us to the present day then. What do we know? Has anything come out of all this DNA evidence or otherwise? In 2016, the Nevada Department of Corrections finally started doing DNA testing of all the inmates in its prison system. There'd been a law in the books there that required that clear back to the 90s, but when it was passed, it, it was not retroactive, so it only applied to new people coming in. And then when the law was updated to make it retroactive, the Department of Corrections in Nevada took the legal position that uh, it didn't apply to them. And it was, 
you know, three more years, 2016, before the Nevada Attorney General basically issued a, a public ruling saying, you know, you're violating the law. You've got to test everybody in your system and get their DNA into the FBI's database. And so they started doing that in waves. It took them about 18 months to get to a guy named Alex Christopher Ewing, and they put his DNA into the CODIS database in July of 2018, and it immediately hit on the Bennett homicide. And so there have been, you know, follow-up attempts to interview him by the police. Um, they've they've confirmed the DNA match with their own testing, um, and the legal proceedings are sort of grinding along slowly, in the opinion of the families of these victims, to get him back to Colorado where he's going to face uh, quite a number of charges in each of these two murder cases. All right. So suffice to say, there it appears that there could be some real resolution here, and we will urge our listeners, if they want to get the complete story in detail and hear much more about what happened back then in the 80s when this all happened and then in more recent years as this case has been investigated and finally, uh, as I said, some resolution, uh, check out the Blame podcast, right? Absolutely. And um, I can tell you that uh, we've answered some of the questions. We now understand why this might have just stopped here. And uh, we now understand why uh, so many years went by without anything like this happening again. And um, we're going to cover all that in the in the podcast uh, that's up now. And, well, and let me ask, do you learn much about this suspect's background, his history, and, and who he was and who he is? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He grew up in uh, Northern California. Um, he bounced around the country quite a bit in the late 70s and early 80s. He had uh, some relatively minor criminal offenses, but nothing that really suggested anything like like what happened here. Um, but, um, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those strange things that's, that's hard to find an answer for, but I, I suppose anytime somebody breaks into houses in the middle of the night and kills people with a hammer, it would be hard to find answers about why something like that happens. And were you able to talk to that first couple in the case in the first instance of an attack taking place? We have talked to them more recently. A couple of my colleagues interviewed them uh, shortly after this suspect was identified. And, and they talked about essentially living all their lives wondering, you know, is he going to come back someday? He knows who we are. We don't know who he is. You know, um, that kind of thing I could imagine could could really be terrifying over a long period of time. Just the ability to go to sleep at night and, and not have nightmares or wake up and think about that happening again, I can only imagine. Absolutely. And um, all of these victims, um, the, the family members of the, of the people who died have had ramifications through their lives. There's, um, you know, there, there are ways that this crime plays out in their lives every day. Little Vanessa Bennett, who was three years old when her head was bashed in with a hammer, she, she lived and she's alive today, and we've interviewed her. But, but she's got, um, you know, she's got brain damage that's affected her life in a lot of ways. She's had a really hard life, and again, this thing reverberates through her life every single day. Kevin Vaughn, thanks for talking to us, and of course, people can listen to the podcast, the Blame Podcast, wherever they listen to podcasts. Thanks again for telling us about this really horrific story, but one that appears to be coming to to some sort of conclusion. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm Jessica Knoll, and I'm here with Spencer Brudig and Will Johnson. So, Will, I got to know, first and foremost, how are the survivors of this doing today? Well, so Kevin gets into that a little bit in our interview, but he goes deep into it in the Blame podcast. And I will tell you that there's that first couple that are attacked who survive uh, in their home in the middle of the night. And, And clearly, that was a harrowing, traumatic experience. And for a long time, they had to deal with the memory of that and the fear associated with it. And as Kevin points out, just not knowing if this guy, you know, where he was, they didn't have anybody behind bars. The really difficult one to hear about, although, you know, it's a blessing she survived this attack, but uh, the young girl who who survived, the family of four who was attacked by, by the suspect, she's older now, much older. She was four when that happened, right? Yeah, right. So she is an adult. She struggled with addiction. She has struggled with uh, having a place to live. She has been homeless. Kevin catches up with her in the podcast and has pretty intense conversation about her memory of the event, which she really doesn't have much of one. She, She has some memories of early childhood and being with her parents. But at a very young age, she lost her parents and her sibling in a very violent way. And and it clearly has had an impact on on her and her life. You know, thinking of Denver and its surrounding areas, it doesn't – Denver as a city doesn't conjure up any notion of, of you know, tremendous amounts of violence or attacks or anything like this. I imagine a big amount of fear must have settled over this whole area. And it's mentioned that, you know, guns uh, and security systems were bought at a much higher rate because no one knew who was doing this and they seemed to be at random, right? Denver, Denver was growing at the time, becoming this rather, you know, large cosmopolitan city and there were – Big buildings going into downtown Denver, but yes, you're absolutely right in that all of a sudden you've got these really random attacks and people start and police start to put them together. You know, here's one couple attacked in the middle of the night. Well, maybe that's a random one-off. Then there's a a woman in her driveway attacked and, well, this looks like, are these connected? Then you have this third case and, you know, terrified, I think, is the way to put it. People were all of a sudden buying You know, when you have people buying guns and burglar alarms who've never bought those kinds of things before, you start to appreciate the kind of terror, the kind of fear that was going on. It reminds me a bit of a podcast we worked on earlier this year for Vault Studios, Bomber, where there is a package bomb. This was the Austin bombings of of a year or so ago, where a package bomb was placed on the front steps of someone's house. And there's all sorts of questions about whether this is a one-off attack, whether he was... Uh, the police even wondered whether, in that case, he had his own device and it exploded. Similarly, once you start to have a string or a serial nature to any crime, that's where people really start to worry and talk and wonder and rumors start spreading. And this became a, a situation where there was no – they just stopped, you know. And and if you listen to the full podcast, Blame, you'll understand why. And, and – in Denver, in this uh, particular string of crimes, they seem to be escalating because when he got to, by the time he got to the family of four, he wasn't just physically assaulting them. There were some other components to his assault to them. There were, right, with the first couple, you, you bring up a really good point because the first couple, you get the sense that this is somebody who's emboldened, who's getting more uh, brazen and eventually killing people and, yes, sexually attacking them. Uh, they're, it's a, they're terrible crimes, but you do have this sort of classic pattern, it almost feels, of somebody who is playing in an area, excuse the expression, or starting to, to 
act out on fantasies or thoughts or ideas and then take those to an extreme that none of us really want to know about. And his weapon that he used, it's so visceral and at the same time every day, a right? A hammer. hammer. It's just really scary. And so this episode's actually kind of a sneak peek into an entire season uh, that our Denver station is working on with Blame. And they this is actually a third season for that particular podcast. Uh, I'm definitely interested in listening to this one. Will, tell us a little bit about the, the other two seasons that they have for Blame. Yeah, yeah I mean, you can uh, go and find Blame and anywhere you listen to podcasts, it should be there. But there are our three seasons, and Kevin Vaughn, who is the reporter who we talked to in this interview, uh, is passionate about these stories. He has been in Denver for a really long time. He was a newspaper reporter for uh, 25 years. He eventually got into TV. He's been at KUSA for about four and a half years now. Um, but he's put in a lot of work into all of these stories, talking to survivors, talking to police officers. The other two seasons of Blame are equally intriguing and compelling. The first one is about a woman who lived in the eastern plains of Colorado. Uh, her husband called police. They came to where they lived uh, in a very remote area. And her husband said her six-year-old son, their six-year-old son, had accidentally shot and killed the mother. There was a ridiculous, is my understanding from Kevin, a just a minute amount of investigation that went into this and there was no, I mean, you know, fingerprints, all the normal things you think about. Even an autopsy, they didn't go through with. And it was decided that, you know, this was an accident, that the six-year-old son had killed her. Many years later, uh, it's looked into. Um, and as you might suspect, they find out more evidence. And it might not have been the six-year-old son. And they changed that ruling. It was no longer accidental, I will say. Uh, and hopefully you'll listen to the podcast that the husband died of a drug overdose as this investigation was coming to light. The second season of Blame, quick preview, is about a man who was basically lost inside his home, died, and was found over a year later, I believe it was, or almost a year later, uh, inside his home. It's called Lost at Home. He was lost inside of his That's home. the expression. That's the title of this of the season of Blame that you can listen to, but uh, he, no one knew he was there. Uh, and also... If you like True Crime Chronicles, please uh, give us a like, give us a subscribe, uh, tell your friends and family about us, and uh, please review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you want to discuss this and other cases that we're working on or you think we should take a look at, visit us in our Facebook group and join. It's called Inside the Crime Vault on Facebook. And we're also on all other social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. <laughs>